Well, folks, I did it. I went through all 109 film scores written by John Williams over his 60-year film career. I've watched all 109 films, which means I have heard every single note that John Williams wrote that appears in those films. I did the math, and it's close to 10,000 minutes of music, or more than 150 hours. Now, there are definitely many hours of music that never made it into a film or never even got recorded, but Williams had written anyway. Now, it's likely we will never hear every single note John Williams wrote for those films, but through this podcast, I was able to do something that very few people in the world have done. Now, just thinking about it right now is extremely exhausting, but I am so happy to have done it. I've learned a lot about music and about John Williams and about movie making in general. But there is so much more to learn. Now, there's a lyric in the film Yentl that says, The more I learn, the more I realize, the less I know. And boy, is that true. And to kind of prove that, I've invited one more guest on the baton who's going to make me realize how little I really know about John Williams. So joining me today on the show is Frank Lehman. He is a music professor at Tufts University and one of the prominent scholars on John Williams' music. He's created a website that lists every single theme and motif in the nine Star Wars films, as well as the four Indiana Jones films. And it's my absolute pleasure to be joined by Frank Lehman today. Hello, Frank. How are you today? Hi, Jeff. It is a, a pleasure and an honor to be here with you on this episode in particular. Yeah, the finale. I, we're saving the best for last. That's all Oof. I can say. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but it's uh, it tickles me to think that I'll be here with you after the amazing number of films and scores that you have listened to and, and thought deeply about over the course of this podcast. Right. All right. Let's, let's get this out of the way right now. I noticed a photograph of you on your website, franklehman.com with John Williams at your side. So I have two questions. First, when was this picture taken? And second, is it okay if I'm extremely jealous that you have that photograph? Well, I'll answer the second question first. Yes, it's okay to be jealous. I would be jealous of, of myself if, if I were in that situation. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a dream come true, really. This was in 2009, uh, excuse me, 2019 um, at Tanglewood. And the, uh, the context there is I had actually been invited to give a pre-concert talk. This was for the um, Across the Stars concert, the Anna Sophie Muter violin showcase, uh, uh, big, big premiere. And because, you know, I'm sort of a known quantity in the Boston area in Massachusetts, they invited me to talk a little bit about um, uh, the, the way in which film music can be repurposed for the concert hall. I mean, that's really appropriate for that, that particular concert. So I gave a talk. It was mostly actually on Across the Stars, the theme, you know, in, in conjunction with the, the name of the concert. And because I participated in that, that uh, uh, little lecture, I was granted backstage passes, so to speak. So after the concert, I hurried off to the, the, the side of the shed at Tanglewood and waited patiently for Williams to come out. And he did dutifully met with fans, met with uh, other people who were VIPs. And I managed to convince some fellow behind me to take a picture of the two of us. <laughs> this was after I, you know, talked with him about how much I appreciated his work and how he's inspired me and, and, uh, uh, furnished so, so much uh, uh, work for me, you know, just professionally. It's been incredible uh, how much 
his music has benefited my career. So I, you know, in probably a jumble of words that he was, you know, happy to stop hearing from me. I, I, I praised him and I said, thank you so much and all this stuff and got the, the picture, you know, the, 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 probably the best picture I'll ever have of me over the course of my life. And that was actually not the end of it, though. Amazingly, after that concert, later in the summer, I was invited back to, to give an even more sort of elaborate lecture at the, the Tanglewood Learning Institute on film music and the psychology of music and film. And Williams was again sort of present and uh, featured in a kind of interview session where I spoke with him about his leitmotivic process a little bit. So I, it was a, an amazing year, 2019, with two full encounters of uh, between me and Williams of varying degrees. Okay, that's that's it. I have <laughs> yeah. green with envy. That is amazing. Yeah. Highlight of my life, probably. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just not only to not get an exaggeration. <laughs> not only to get an audience with him after the concert, but to be able to sit with him and hear him talk about his process, which is something that he he rarely talks about. So uh, Yeah. You you must have picked up a lot. I did, you know, you can you can believe that I, I sort of transcribed in my head everything that he said over the course of those concerts, and he said some interesting things, things that have helped me make sense of his procedures compositionally, so it was, it was really wonderful. Fantastic. So you said you're a known quantity in the Boston area, but mostly through all, I'm sure, through all your years of teaching at Tufts University. How long have you been teaching there? Um, I started at Tufts in 2013, and have mostly taught things like music theory, music history. This past spring was the first time I taught a dedicated course on John Williams, though. I, I finally um, I ascended through the ranks sufficiently so that I could teach whatever I wanted. And this, of course, was the first class, the, the, the sort of dream course that I gave. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit later because that seems very special. So there's a saying, uh, those can't do teach. Um, is that true for you in terms of your abilities as a musician um yeah actually it's not so far off um i think like a lot a lot of people who get into music music academia we start off by having an interest in you know creative activity and for me it was performance and composition as an undergraduate i dabbled a little bit in film composition more to get a sense of what the career and and the job entailed less uh, an actual goal to become the next John Williams. Um, but, you know, I, I wrote some music and, and some music that probably <laughs> emulated or, or imitated Williams more than I care to admit now. But I, I found um, myself always more drawn, I think, to the analytical side of things, um, dealing with music as a text rather than producing music as a, as a text. So that led naturally to a more academic career and... Certainly, there's been no shortage of material to analyze or, or to, to study, most of which has been totally untouched by uh, scholars to this point. So it's really exciting, actually. And teaching is wonderful, too. I mean, that's like the best part of my job, quite honestly. Yeah, passing on knowledge, of course. Yeah. So how old were you when this path started to you know, getting involved in music? Oh, it's, it's hard to pinpoint an age, I think. <laughs> Probably the first time I heard like the NBC News theme um, on my parents' television as a, a toddler, you know, Williams' music was already present in my brain. And I, I grew uh, sort of enamored of his music, particularly after I uh, um, 
obtained a tape cassette of the kids stuff recording. This was one of the Phillips uh, Williams and the Boston Pops recordings, you know, it it was a mixture of Williams hits and, you know, like Wizard of Oz and the Pink Panther. And the thing was, I had never seen any of the movies like I was, what, seven, eight years old. I had never seen any of the films that were represented on that cassette. So to me, it was just pure music, right? really dramatic and exciting and colorful music that I could assign my own stories to in my head. So I think that was my my pathway into film music has really been more via music than via film per se. Right. Well, it's kind of interesting, Frank, because that CD you're talking about, Kid Stuff, that was the first ever music purchase that I ever made in my life. No kidding. (laughs) Yeah, it was right after, it was in 93, because it was Mm -hmm. right after I had watched Jurassic Park. It was like, who is this guy that's making this music? And and I found out who he was, and, and so I was like, well, I don't want to buy like 50 CDs. I just want to see if I can get like a compilation, and that one was there. And um, I, I, I regrettably can't find that CD anymore. I wish I had been able to hold on to it as a memento, but I vividly remember just, you know, it was a CD, so I could listen to it hours and hours and hours on end, not wearing out and um, memorizing all that stuff. It was great. Well, that makes sense, right? Here, the two of us are, <laughs> having been exposed to that, that particular album at an early age. Um, and I think it was actually mostly uh, recordings from previous Phil- Phillips albums. So it wasn't even a, a, a completely unique performance, but it was right. enough to, it was enough to sway us into <laughs> into the light side. I'm not going to call it the dark side, the light side <laughs> of, of John Williams appreciation. Yep, yep. So uh, you've, you've did you grow up in the Boston area? Yeah, I've uh, I've never really managed to escape about a 35 mile radius around Boston my entire life, which suits me just fine. I love it here. Yeah, I've been there once. It was really beautiful. And I, I bring that up because you got a master's from Brown and then a doctorate from Harvard, and now you're teaching at Tufts. So you just seemed, I, it just seemed like you really were drawn to just wanting to either stay home or obviously you, you can't really beat the education you can get from schools in the Boston area. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a... Uh... They don't call it the Athens of America for no reason. Uh, you know, now that you, you phrase it that way, maybe part of me unconsciously wanted to remain uh, uh, in this uh, geographical region because of the ease of attending film night at the Pops, you know, in May every year, because I have gone to that as much as possible. Um, but really, it was because of the strength of the, the various um, undergraduate and then graduate programs. So your, your master's and your doctorate theses, did they have any connection to film music? Well, um, for, for my bachelor's, I, I actually, this is when I still fancied myself a kind of potential film composer. I did write some music for a student film um, with a, a friend and a, a RISD student that probably will, will not be on my opus list when I you know, finally catalog all this stuff. It, it's kind of embarrassing now. Um, so that, that was more creative than academic. But when I did my, my uh, PhD thesis, this was on... Um, film music and particularly the harmonic analysis of film music. And the thought there was initially I, I, I was really um, taken with the music of Wagner around that time. In addition to film music, that had been a longer, long lasting um, love of mine. So I thought, you know, uh, Wagner, this is a, a really important composer and someone that I'm fascinated with. I'll, I'll think about writing a, a dissertation on him, but it's so hard to come up with new things to say about Wagner, who is the most written about you know musician in all history. Of course. Whereas film, I mean, uh, 
we all talk about it now, but even 10, 15 years ago, it was, it was pretty rare to have sustained scholarly and especially theoretical work done on, on film music, especially mainstream film music. So I saw this as an opening that would allow me to say something new. So fast forward six, seven years, I have a, a, a thesis in hand on, oh God, the, the title of this thing is just you know, the, the most atrocious academies that you could imagine. It's, um, uh, oh God, reading tonality through film, transformational hermeneutics and the music of New Hollywood. Like, ugh, who, who would ever want to read that? <laughs> Yeah, you got to give it some pizzazz. <laughs> yeah, well, I did that when, you know, after after you do your dissertation, then the plan generally is to produce a book out of it. So I came up with a snazzier title for the, the, the sort of revised and expanded and uh, popularized version, Hollywood Harmony. Um, still very clogged full of uh, uh, academic jargon, but maybe a little bit more accessible <laughs> than my yeah. thesis. <laughs> It's you know I've got to re to read bits and pieces of that book and it, it wasn't too academic for me and I don't know if it's because through this podcast I've had to read very academic things about music theory and whatnot as applies to John Williams but a lot of it didn't go over my head and this is someone whose music education is really at the community college level just learning how to read music so uh, I, I I speak for those who is maybe are maybe lay people reading it 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 read really well. Well, that means a lot to me. I mean, I did try to pitch it in a way that could be accessed with people that didn't necessarily have an advanced degree in music theory. Um, right. I mean, it's a, it's a very technical sort of thing to deal with, right? Music is uh, uh, complex and there is a kind of meta language associated with it, which you can't take for granted. But the thing, the thing with film music and with Williams music in particular, it, it's so often well known and creates a hook for readers that they you can latch on to something where I don't think there are really that many other musical figures in our culture these days that that can serve as an entry point for so many people quite like Williams and, and, and film music more, more generally speaking. Oh, absolutely not. No, no way. Mm -hmm. no. I don't think anybody, you, you know, you'd walk down the street, you could probably mention John Williams, and you'd probably maybe one out of every 10 people would know, but you mentioned somebody like Jerry Goldsmith or Hans Zimmer, James Horner, um, you, you, they don't resonate, even though they may, yeah. you may start to mention their films like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember. But well, yeah, John Williams, it's instant. I tell you, maybe it's only one out of 10 people who would recognize the name, but if you whistle the Star Wars main theme or Harry Potter or any of these iconic hits, I'm pretty sure it would be closer to, I'll say, 7 out of 10. That, that, and yeah. that's a low estimate. You're right. You're right. All right. So I want to talk about this film, cl this class you did on the film music of John Williams. It's really fascinating. I really, really, when I read about this on Twitter, you were talking about it while you were teaching it on Twitter. And it made me really wish I was a college student at Tufts because I really wanted to be able to teach this. Uh, how, how were you able to convince your superiors, I guess, that this would be something that would be a, a good class to have? Uh, I think it was tenure, probably. You know, <laughs> getting tenure yeah. allowed me to get away with things that I wasn't able to before then. And and to be fair, my, my colleagues are extremely supportive and uh, encouraged me to teach something that I would have wanted to have taken myself as a student. And this is the kind of course that I would have, you know, been over the moon to have taken as an undergraduate. So, uh, you know, I pitched it, it got approved, it got put on the books. This is now an official course at Tufts that could be taught year after year if I have the energy and if the interest uh, is sustainable. And uh, it was a popular class too. I mean, it was, um, 
it, it filled up immediately. There were students that had to be put on a wait list because uh, they didn't get their, their initial pick. That, that suggests that I will be teaching it again. So, and that's, that's the best kind of argument that you can give to administrators that a course should be offered um, routinely is that, that there's interest, it's, it, it could be popular. So tell me what the makeup of a typical John Williams class is. Well, I was very careful when formulating this class to make it completely accessible to people with no uh, musical training or previous background whatsoever. That means that it was, I would say, primarily non-music majors and maybe even non-musicians in the audience. People that were curious about the subject but maybe didn't know anything about the art of film scoring or who were fans of Star Wars or filmmaking in general, but not necessarily um, uh, film music as a craft. So I, I, I structured the class so that essential music and uh, musicological concepts were conveyed throughout, but in a way that the the music of Williams was sort of um, uh, uh, describing and clarifying and articulating those musical concepts. So it was, it was very open. There was no, uh, assumption that you could read music, and I don't think that we ever had any. There may have been a, a, a score or two, but it was more just to demonstrate, you know, that this is what it looks like, and if you do have the experience of something extra, but it wasn't a requirement, that's for sure. Yeah, right. It just had, and it had to be fun for you because this is a subject that you knew well, and um, probably the energy for you was not difficult to muster for every single class. <laughs> that's that is quite true, actually. Um, <laughs> There were parts of it that actually were quite new to me, not just uh, sort of condensing my knowledge of Williams, but also some genuine corners of his output that I didn't know that well beforehand that I, because I was in a position to teach it, you know, that's the best way to actually learn it and and understand yourself. So aspects of his early uh, musical career, particularly his jazz background, um, which is something that I knew about kind of in the abstract, but hadn't really studied those early albums like the John, John Towner touch or, uh, you know, all the collaborations he did with various uh, other performers as an arranger. I really got to know that stuff. And I mean, he was an incredibly talented and prolific musician before he ever uh, scored a feature film. I mean, it's, it's an incredible career. And that's something that I tried to convey over the course of my class, that this is someone that's important to the history of music in the 20th and 21st centuries now for more reasons than just the really well-known film scores. Right, because I think a lot of people only believe that it's like he was just born into existence and started and made Jaws and that and nothing came before that. So it's it, it's really important to be able to let people know that there was a lot before that. Yeah, and, and not just uh, music that's a curiosity or some kind of juvenilia. I mean, there's really fantastic music that predates Jaws. Um, as you well know from having looked and listened to every single one of those films, mm-hmm. um, and and it's it's not it's not merely of archival interest either. I mean, I think of scores like Fitzwilly or even not you know things like um, Not with My Wife You Don't or uh, None But the Brave. There's there's fantastic forgotten gems across his early career that I just I mean I got a huge kick out of acquainting myself with in some cases for the first time, other cases really um, more deeply than I'd ever allowed myself prior. Let's take a, a, a deep dive into your Star Wars catalog. It, it really is extensive. And I, I, I'm going to admit, Frank, I didn't even know it existed until I started looking for um, some 
analysis and some kind of uh, some help with understanding some music from Return of the Jedi. So it wasn't until I got to Return of the Jedi that I started to um, look deep into stuff and um, came across this. And I was like, why didn't I know this before? I mean, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back are two <laughs> of my favorite scores, and I know a lot about it. But even reading all that stuff and the stuff you wrote about it, I mean, my eyes were open to a lot of other things. I was like, yeah, if I'd known that, I would have been able to put that in the Star Wars episode, for example. But um, it, it really was just one of those things I, I could not stop reading it and of course I could read I could read music so it was like reading it and, and hearing the music in my head was so much fun and I imagine it was really fun for you to, to be able to pull out all of these themes and motifs when did you start doing that let's see I think I the, the idea first occurred to me around the time that the force awakens came out in 2015 and I had done a, a little work um uh, there was an article with Mashable that somehow I, I managed to to produce on the new themes of The Force Awakens. And concurrently, um, I've been in contact with Emilio Odesino, uh, you know, the uh, author of that wonderful book on, on John Williams. And he was putting together an, uh, an edited volume, the first of its kind, on the music of Williams from a variety of different scholars. And he asked me if there's anything that I could think to contribute and I thought I looked at this uh, work that I'd done with Mashable, which is you know very slight, of course. Um, and the kind of genesis of this catalog was actually for Emilio's volume, but I kept on adding to it. I kept on in- enhancing it and and expanding to the point where what started as basically a single page of a couple hyperlinks and labels is now. Uh, ballooned into this 60-page-long document with no, I'll add, no sign of stopping. Um, this isn't something that I'm done with. I don't know that I'll ever be done with it. Um, I was just making changes to it yesterday night, uh, adding new themes, condensing themes, condensing motifs, merging and splitting, and adding bibliography and, and additional information were were useful. I mean, there is a sense that after Williams wrote episode nine that I can kind of stop uh, uh, working on this so intensively. There's not going to be any major New Williams music. I don't even know if there will be any. He said that there hasn't, that he's not planning on, on writing anymore, but he said that before. So who knows? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I would imagine by now, you know the music for all nine Star Wars films backwards and forwards. Yeah, that'd be a fun uh, needle drop exercise for me. You know, name that tune after what, like a half of a second's worth <laughs> or maybe even less. Um but I'll qualify that by saying there are still, you know, little uh, shadowy areas in the Star Wars uh, the Skywalker saga that for which I'd, I'm not familiar with the music. And that's I guess I'm being rather specific here with um, uh, the Rise of Skywalker, where so much of the music um, evidently did not make it into the final film or the album or the uh, for your consideration album. So there's there's some aspects of that, which I, ca- I cannot uh claim to to know whatsoever someday hopefully we all will but not right now all right so i've I've got to put you on the spot but i guess probably not because this like you said it's probably a good needle drop exercise (laughs) but uh what are your two favorite themes from all nine of the star wars films oh my gosh um so to answer this question i mean i have to be very honest with you my opinion on on favorite themes is extremely fickle, right? As it would have to be, you know, they're, they're all wonderful in their own respect. Um, so my my mood uh, <laughs> determines what 
on any given day, I think is the best. But one that I keep coming back to, actually, um, which is a bit of an oddity, I suppose, is the Luke and Leia theme um, from Return of the Jedi. And there, there are a couple of reasons why this particular leitmotif, I don't know, it, there's something special about it. And maybe it, that specialness is at least in part due to its sheer scarcity. Um, it was a theme that prior to episode eight, at least, it only had, it only really featured in two cues in Return of the Jedi and, and their maybe five or six statements. Um, so extremely sparingly used, and that adds to a certain mystique of the theme. Um, it has a gorgeous concert arrangement, um, one of the best. And I also add the uh, Anna Sophie Muter version, which Williams uh, uh, arranged and recorded last year, is also phenomenal. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't actually um, interfere with the pre-existing structure of the Luke and Leia concert suite very much. To its credit, um, there are no real excisions, but it works just gloriously on a solo violin. And I mean, there's just so many components of the theme that I think collaborate to make it especially memorable and and kind of precious uh, to, to me personally. Um, there, there are extra musical components to it. Like I, I think I'm not the only one who sensed a certain similarity with uh, Make Our Garden Grow from Leonard Bernstein's Candide, at least in the opening um, melodic gesture. If I go to the piano right now just to play how the Candide piece sounds. Right, something along those lines. And of course, Luke and Leia opens very similarly, again on the piano. Also hear a little bit of Born on the Fourth of July in there too, which is maybe a little bit more obscure uh, of a reference, both in the Bernstein and in the Williams, uh, and and that's a, a beautiful and underrated score from Williams um, in its own right. And this, I, I, again, I'm not the only person who's noted this. I mean, this has been um, uh, uh, observed since 1983, but the theme really does, in a way, synthesize a couple different musical ideas from elsewhere in the, the, the Star Wars musical universe. There's, um, of course, there's Leia's theme in um, the opening to the concert arrangement. The harmonic progression um, is very similar, if not completely identical to Han Solo and the princess, as well as Leia. And there are moments within the melodic structure that are, I, to my ears, quite clearly modeled on Luke Skywalker's theme. This this little section in particular towards the end of the, uh, the last phrase.
So it's, it's, it's ingenious. It's really wonderfully crafted, but super effective in, in, in my, my mind, at least. Yeah. It's really amazing how, uh, I, I always think it, it really leans heavily more towards Leia, but I think that's just because of the, the mood and the pacing of it. But uh, I think that was something I really picked up on just recently, many months after I did the Return of the Jedi episode, is I could hear those descending notes that was like, yeah, that's that's Luke right there. That's Luke, yeah. yeah. And, and it's, it's, one could miss that detail and, and still the theme would be equally effective for what it's meant to convey, you know, the relationship between Luke and Leia and the, the sort of not so romantic, uh, which is what Williams, of course, initially thought their relationship was going to be, but rather, you know, a filial sibling relationship. Um, so there's a kind of maturity to it and a lyricism, but not an outright, um, you know, uh, uh, sensuality, so to speak. And, but I'm also just, I'm always thrilled when Williams writes these really long melodies. I mean, this thing is 35 or so measures long, incredibly broad and long breathed and ha- gives itself space, which is quite rare in, in film music, including, uh, you know, a lot of modern film music. I mean, this, the, the preference is generally for short ideas. So when you have a, a, a musical idea, uh, a, a statement which requires this, this much time and this much space to evolve, um, that's something special. Oh yeah, I think a lot of the Star Wars themes they they really are those long line melodies that are allowed to fully play out because uh, they really make this long statement. And I think you know it's it's a testament to people like George Lucas that allowed John Williams to create those melodies that that aren't just two seconds in and out. Yeah, and there's quite a lot of this in Return of the Jedi in particular. They're there aren't that many new themes, right? You get you have Luke and Leia, which is very scarce, and Jabba and the Ewoks and the Emperor, but those themes generally do have uh, a certain extent, um, and and their passages not not just light motifs, but also sort of more incidental themes like the um, whatever it's called, the the dark side beckons when Luke and, and Vader are clashing, and then there's yeah. this uh, um, you know very memorable little uh, choral religioso passage that Williams writes and and. And again, this is maybe it's because it's become such a rarity to have these well-developed musical ideas that you know exist within phrases and, and subphrases and really follow a musical logic in addition to a dramatic or, or visual logic. That I don't know. There's something um, really appealing to the musician in me that it makes film going a kind of musical experience. And and but I think that's probably true for a lot of us Williams acolytes that we go to the movies in part at least to to take it in as a musical experience, almost like a concert. Right, exactly. All right, so what's this uh, second musical motif <laughs> that you like? Yeah, so I'm going to go really obscure here. I'm not even going to go leitmotif. This is a one-off. It's like the most uh, uh, obscure, esoteric moment in all nine movies, except for John Williams' uh, fanatics, and that is The Tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise from episode three. Okay. And... A very, very specific four-measure-long idea from that. It's only stated within that single cue. It's not on the soundtrack. It's not on any of the bootlegs. As far as I know, there's never been a clean rip of this little passage, um, which makes it all the more appealing to me. It's the um, music when 
Palpatine is talking to Anakin at the Opera House, and he says, "It is uh, the tragedy of Darth Plagueis. It's a old Sith legend the Jedi wouldn't have told you, and it's the most subtle kind of underscoring you can imagine. It's just this very quiet little chord progression. There's not even really a melody attached to it. It's more um, like a chorale or, or some sort of uh, uh, stately hymn." very dark, minor, the harmony is functional, but a little weird, and it comes and goes, just perfectly timed with the dialogue, too. It's just this immaculately uh, uh, um, imagined little throwaway, uh, virtually no connection to anything else that happens elsewhere in Revenge of the Sith or or any of the other scores, but just simply, uh, in in a subtle way, overwhelming in its, its power to me. Um, on the piano, I, I, you'll have to imagine this in sort of a, a very quiet bed of of strings playing this passage here. And then Palpatine, you know, sort of winks at the camera practically after saying his his dialogue. It's just wonderful. I, I love it so much. And it's such a shame that this has never been released because it is uh, a highlight, I think, of the entire score uh, for episode three. Well, that's absolutely amazing. I mean, that's that definitely seems like, especially in that scene, because you're all you're hearing is those like those deep throat vocal vocalizing that's going mm-hmm. on in that scene. And so that's what you're concentrating on. And then. I, I remember this vividly. I remember the strings playing underneath, but thinking, okay, that's just, it's filler. It's just out there. But there, it might have had some some purpose, at least according to John Williams, and definitely for you. That's that's amazing. And I, I bet you you probably would not have not, ever noticed that if you weren't really trying to analyze every single note and, and the meaning of every single passage in these films. And that's one of the reasons why it appeals to me that it, it, it is um, <laughs> it's really a kind of insider <laughs> bit of music. And uh, you know there, there, maybe it does have some kind of musical ramifications. I mean, it, the, the, the tune itself, the, because there isn't a tune, there's not much that can be repeated, but a certain quality within the, the harmonic language and the way that you get this religioso sound, almost like it's in a tabernacle or something, that is actually recalled in um, episode nine with the Anthem of Evil, or as Williams called it, the Psalm of the Sith. This is kind of a Psalm of the Sith before the fact, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's not really leitmotivic, but it has a certain ambiance that I think that he channeled once again in 2019. Absolutely amazing. It's so much fun to hear that. So I've got to put you on the spot again. So if, if you were on a desert island and you were left with, a speaker playing a Star Wars melody, leitmotif, theme, whatever, on an endless loop all day. What would that be? That what would what melody would that be that you would never get tired of hearing? Let's see. So the, the scenario is I'm on a desert island 
with no hope of escape is that right well let's let's say <laughs> maybe it's like castaway you're you're there for a few years and and uh, you've got well, you know, there's music to entertain you but it's just this one piece of music well i would i think i would need something that would keep my spirits high that would make me want to survive from day to day <laughs> so maybe you know uh, the the force theme in in some configuration um the rise of skywalker concert suite that's very affirmative and uh life-affirming, so I'll, perhaps I'll go with that. If it's like energizing me, uh, that that is what is desired. Then you know, I guess uh, the Imperial March could be <laughs> a good one. I just hope that there's no one else on the island to <laughs> think that I'm some sort of dark lord. Yeah, good. Yeah, point. yeah. I like those. It's a good choice. Okay, so but actually, you know, uh, yeah, go ahead. Not not to <laughs> to make too much of this, but if if it's um, possible, maybe I just want to get the most bang for my buck. I would go for a really long queue or something that lasts you know 15 minutes or so like maybe one of those battle of endor uh um uh synthesizers sort of stitched together cues on the the rca album that lasts like 10 15 minutes right. that way i could get a lot you know a lot for my money yeah the 15 minute battle of hoth that's actually one of my favorite oh moments. yeah okay there we go that's it that's the answer now battle <laughs> of hoth no question maybe if i could like uh uh splice that with the asteroid field because they're basically oh the same yes set piece right you <laughs> know yes there's a little bit of silence between the two of them but yeah Oh my gosh. Go. Perfect yeah. answer. Yes. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to Indiana Jones. And, and of course, like I said, this is only four films, so it's not as, you know, extensive and elaborate, but um, I would imagine you just said, well, I've Star Wars, why not go into the other big, big um, movie saga? Yeah. Well, the, the rationale for doing this catalog um, beyond just being kind of a, a, a natural next step and, clearly it would be a, a labor of love for me was COVID actually that, that I was stuck at home. Um, but still thinking about Williams every day because I was, I was teaching this class suddenly uh, remotely. So I thought, well, what's one way to, to keep my spirits up and to give myself a project that, that is above and in addition to the other responsibilities, which I already have, you know, professionally. And I thought, okay, well, it's time to do this Indiana Jones catalog that I've been thinking would make sense um, for a long time. So just, Spent a couple days transcribing the themes, doing little analyses. Um, for for this one, I actually treated it more like almost a fake book, if that makes sense. Where where rather than short little inchipits of the music, that just enough to give you an idea of what the theme, how to identify it, but not to to reconstruct it in any way. Here, I tried to um, 
convey as much as possible for some of the themes from Indiana Jones. So like all of Marion's theme, like a complete full statement is in there. Um, the various versions of the Grail theme are, are provided in some way or another. Like one could, uh, you know, go to a piano, like at a, a jazz club or something and, and riff on these and, and actually produce, I think, a pretty good evening's worth of music inspired by Indiana Jones. Yeah, what is it? What does it feel like to to be able to put these kinds of things together? And like you said, you wrote as a, a kind of a fake book and um, and have it because the, you're really the first to to really do this. Well, you know, it's it comes back to that idea of it being something that I wish I had had myself um, in years past. Right? How how nice would it have been to not have to figure out a new every time I tried to play the Raiders March on the piano or maybe not the Raiders March since there is commercially available piano sheet music for that. But um, we'll take like Willie's theme from Temple of Doom or any of the, the various MacGuffin themes, not have to sort of work my way through the piece haphazardly by ear every single time. Wouldn't it be nice just to have a, a resource to, to, to consult every single um, time I sit down at the piano. So that, that made a lot of sense to me as a rationale. And I think others feel similarly, especially if, you know, if, if this music means a lot to you, but you're, you're not completely like, you don't have uh, a perfect memory for recreating music um, by ear. It can be a, 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 a real godsend to have a, a reduced version at your disposal. Okay. So here's one part of the Indiana Jones uh, music catalog that, I, I don't see featured in there, but it's it's my favorite part of the movie. And again, if this were like a desert island situation and I had one theme from Indiana Jones, I guess it's not a theme. It's a one-off, but the no ticket scene. Ah, uh, yes. It's so fun. And of course, I as I mentioned in that episode for Last Crusade, it, it feels borrowed from the, the cherries music from Witches of Eastwick. But mm-hmm. it's just, it's it's pure comedy without being like so over the top just buffoonish i just really love how you know i could just see the strings just really having the string section having so much fun with this oh it's a great cue and a one-off and something that may well find its way into my catalog eventually i don't think i prohibited myself from including set piece themes in this so all of these are works in progress and when i get around to it no ticket will be in there you know uh other action set pieces like Belly of the Steel Beast. That's a big one that I haven't included yet. Mm-hmm. Um, the Basket Chase. Lots of great, lot, just lots of great pieces from Indiana Jones that time will tell, but I, I think I'll eventually get around to including them too. And there are other catalogs, of course, other film franchises or films that I think would warrant this sort of treatment. So I have a few in mind. Um, it takes a little bit of time, but I'm sure that... Uh, eventually I'll get around to all the biggies. I would imagine Harry Potter's on your mind. Yeah, Harry Potter's a tricky one, actually, because only, as you know, the first three films are, are scored by Williams, but there's subsequent, you know, huge body, not just from the, the main um, right. Potter films, but also Fantastic Beasts, where you have different composers involved. And admittedly, I don't know those subsequent film scores as well as I should, certainly not as well as, as one through three. Um, but that said, there's there's... Plenty of motivic material just in uh, 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 the first three Harry Potter films to to fill many scores of pages of, of thematic catalog work. So absolutely, that will come eventually for sure. Okay, no hurry for me. I'm just I just <laughs> yeah. kind of figured that might be your your next plan. 
Well, you know, and 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 there's there's good work that's already been done. I want to give credit where credit is due to you know the the, the phenomenal um, uh, complete recordings that have been released with uh, uh, liner notes by I, don't know, I assume Mike Medicino and probably others that that do delineate these the, the thematic material for these movies in fantastic detail and often with uh, uh, observations of things that I never quite noticed myself. Um, but they tend to lack uh, sort of musical transcription. No, not in all cases, but generally they're prose. And what I like is having the actual notation at my hand, at my fingertips. This is something that I, that I took a lot of inspiration from Doug Adams for. I don't know if you're familiar with his work on the Lord of the Rings, but he has like this glorious book that he came out with on the, the music for um, the, the first Lord of the Rings trilogy, which includes beautifully engraved and, and uh, rendered musical examples of all the major leitmotifs from, from Shore's work. So yeah, it's, if, if it's Lord great. of the Rings can get it, then, then so can Star Wars and Harry Potter and all the others. Yeah, I would probably Star Wars, it had to be in volumes, you know, original trilogy, prequel trilogy, sequel trilogy, because there's so much. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. Yeah. So through through all of this, and not just through creating the Star Wars catalog and the Indiana Jones catalog, but just through your 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 life as a John Williams fan, and then being able to teach his class, what have you learned about him as a composer? Well, I think there there's certain aspects I I mentioned earlier, uh, things that he did early in his career that that. Uh, I was only ever sort of partially aware of um, his involvement with with uh, gospel music is something that really I'm only now fully grasping um, as an arranger from Mahalia Jackson. He did four or five albums with her, and, and this is no small feat. I mean, he really arranged music for her. This is back in you know, the 50s and 60s, of course. Um, and these connections, I, 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 I've I've discovered that a lot of what Williams did from the 50s through, say, the early 70s, this this work which we consider not necessarily um, formative or juvenile because, I mean, he was 40 years old writing some of these and they're completely sophisticated and, and uh, in many cases well uh, recognized and awarded film scores and television scores. But I think we sometimes still underrate how much this is uh, pure Williams music, and not only that, but provides sources and clues and 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 uh, precedents for a lot of the material that we now consider to be peak John Williams. Um, you know, tiny little gestures sometimes, you know, just like a chord progression that you might hear in Daddio, or entire genres of music um, that that suffuse his professional development. One thing that I, I've grown to be uh, very impressed by is his career spanning love of and composition for sort of a neo-baroque aesthetic. And by neo-baroque, I mean music that in some way emulates or imitates or channels uh, music from, from Europe, instrumental music from Europe and the Baroque era, fugue, canon, imitation, stretto, that kind of stuff. You hear it throughout his, his uh, compositional career. You hear it I mean, he was writing jazz fugues for uh, the Neophonic Orchestra. He does, uh, you know, the sort of sardonic quasi-Bach in Fitzwilly and their, their fugal passages and images. And it, it's, it's, it's pro, uh, profuse, um, even in, in the, the most uh, banal and kind of forgettable scores like uh, 
the the phony Puccini cue from uh, I think it's not with my wife you don't which is just like this absolutely brilliant fugue and and sort of mock canon on uh, music by Puccini that I don't even know if it even made it into the film it's it, it's remarkable but it's totally a throwaway and I just keep on finding these things these these little throwaways these aspects of his music that's poorly known for the average listener which are actually both on their own terms, fantastic music, and two, uh, help us understand and contextualize some of his better-known music much better. Well, I think it's really interesting how I've learned that too, uh, mostly through my co-hosts who have a better music education than I do, is that they've really pointed to how a lot of music draws from a lot of the European uh, composers of the 1800s, and how it's very, uh, very English and very German also at the mm. same time. I think it's been really interesting to me here. There's been a lot of German influence. Yeah, although remarkably, maybe uh, he he really disavows Wagner. And <laughs> if you've seen, he's <laughs> often asked in, in interviews, you know, uh, do you consider yourself a Wagnerian? Is your usage of the the leitmotif technique a reference to the Ring Cycle or Parsifal or whatever? And Williams pretty consistently, and maybe even more adamantly recently than, than than in previous years, has claimed not to emulate Wagner and not to have any particular interest or even liking of the composer who furnishes, I think, the the the, the most famous musical technique of Star Wars and Indiana Jones, which is leitmotif and sort of uh, this overall style of dramatic and mythical scoring in general. Yeah, and actually. The more I think about it, the more it makes sense because Williams is his his first point of reference is generally previous film music, uh, the generation of film composers that preceded him, the uh, the Korngolds and Steiners, and maybe a little bit more proximate the 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 um, Hermans and, and Norths and and so on. So when he uses leitmotif, I don't actually think that he I, I think he's being genuine when he says that he's not uh, he doesn't have you know Wagner. Uh, looming in in his mind, it's really more a kind of corn goldian, or maybe even goldsmithian, or uh, Alex Northian right. approach to to film scoring that he was um, using. But that said, I mean, he he does. I mean, he knows his repertoire well, and and certainly uh, uh, the Germanic tradition, Strauss and and uh, 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 Mahler, and going further back, Beethoven, of course, and Bach. All these figures are. are quite uh, under his musical control. He says Haydn is his favorite composer, which is interesting because he doesn't write much Haydn-esque music, but um, there, there may, there's maybe something to the the classical purity and wit and uh, humane nature of Haydn's music that appeals to Williams specifically. But it probably just doesn't fit in a film music environment. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. I, uh, to my ears, the closest that Williams has ever gotten to emulating Haydn, it, uh, there's a little quartet in Jane Eyre, which... Is it's kind of like Haydn, and then there's also Java's Baroque recital, which is more a minuet, and it's a little bit more gallant or early classical than than Baroque. But those are, again, throw throwaway pieces, not really a, a statement of aesthetic, you know, uh, uh, priorities. Right. So what what makes John Williams' music so great to your ears, and and why why is his music? been just so insanely popular for the past I guess we could say 45 46 years well if I could answer that question I would probably be a you know a world famous film composer in my own right because there you know I, I teach music I teach composition in some capacity and 
I, I work hard to emphasize that there's a lot of you know, just you have to put the work in. You need to expose yourself to a lot of music. You need to really work on your craft and develop your personal voice. But there is an X factor, which is very hard to, to pin down. Some people just have a kind of musical uh, preternatural ability or genius. And I think Williams is blessed with this, that in some ways there's a kind of effortlessness to his music, which, or it seems effortless. Of course, as you know, he writes constantly. He's incredibly disciplined and has probably produced much more music that ended up in his trash bin than we ever hear. But there is still a kind of mysterious component to, to his skill or anyone who's, you know, gifted at music. And if I were to, you know, if I had to pinpoint a, a particular aspect of his musical voice, I mean, I, I don't know that it can be done. I could go through every musical parameter, harmony, orchestration. I mean, he is a, a brilliant orchestrator, and that is a skill that is not common these days, and that he has the accumulated knowledge of decades and decades worth of, of scoring and arranging earlier in his career. And of course, performance, he, he knows the piano backwards and forwards. If, if it's the popular imagination we're talking about, I think I would probably come down with melody, though, that, that he just has a knack for um, what you could call an earworm, right? A, a piece of music that just sounds like it's existed forever, that you already knew it. And and th- that, that's an impossibly impressive feat and to it's, be able to do that. And it's a melody we think it took him five minutes to write when it probably took him five <laughs> five days. Yeah, well, he he always says that the hardest part of his job is to come up with themes, themes that sound inevitable. Those are almost always the things that he spends the most time perfecting. So, uh, uh, and I, I understand this myself as someone who, you know, as a kind of dilettante tried to write music before, and it's incredibly hard, right? Melody is the most um, ineffable aspect of music, right? You can teach harmony. You can have a three semester long sequence where we go through, you know, uh, pitch organization from the C major scale to like the most advanced atonal sets, right? Whatever. That's all systematic and you can just sort of uh, uh, inculcate that in your students. But when it comes to melody, it's it's elusive. It's, uh, it's distinctive. It's very hard to articulate exactly what makes a good melody. They're general principles, but usually I think the the most successful melodies are the ones that violate those principles of good melodic organization. And Williams does this just constantly. It's incredible. It, it sounds like you're saying this is something that probably can't be taught. It's just instinctively in you to know it. Well, you know, I don't want to uh, close off any avenues to musical greatness. I'm sure that maybe better teachers than I do have the secrets of melodic craft <laughs> down. But um, yeah, in, in my own experience, there, there's just something about creating a perfect melody that is very hard to to explain how it happened. Right. Okay, so I've put off asking this next question because I thought maybe you would give it away in the course of our conversation, but you, I don't think you really have. So what is your overall favorite John Williams film score? Favorite film score? Oh, my gosh. Um, Again, this goes back to Desert Island, <laughs> one you could listen yeah. to forever and ever. Well, you know... Different points in my life, it probably would. I would give you a different answer. I think you know, I think E.T. and Close Encounters would have been top tier for quite a while, along with Empire Strikes Back, which to me is kind of the perfect film score. Yes. Maybe not the the best John Williams score, or even the the best Desert Island score. Now, as you know, as a father and, and someone who 
you know, like can, can reflect on childhood in two different ways, you know, as someone who was a child at one point and also who can see the eyes through my child. I think AI actually may be really um, quite high in, in my hierarchy. It's a, it's a special score to many people who, who know Williams quite well, but it's not known outside of that rather small group. So yeah, let's, let's go with AI today, at least. I'm saying artificial intelligence, uh, best score. I've I've had a few people who've uh, written to me and said after listening to the AI episode they that they were glad to listen to it because it was their favorite and um, it, it shocked me too because it, you know everybody mm-hmm. goes for the big ones and uh, you know when I hear from people that it's it's a smaller one well relatively small I guess a medium score like AI it it kind of takes me back and say yeah there's there's it's it's obviously got some personal connection as you said and mm-hmm. we all have different reasons why i mean that art is very subjective and sometimes we don't even know why it grabs us but it does yeah you know i, I was re-watching some of the the dvd extras for ai in preparation for my class earlier this year and to hear the way that Williams talked about his own work on that score, it's clear to me that he that this was also a real passion project for him, and a particularly emotional project too. Um, there's a kind of melancholy that suffuses the score that, that that just seems to have come from that can only have come from personal experience in some way that that Williams was channeling, or or, or infusing the score with a bit of himself somehow. And you know, it, it, there are various themes in the in the soundtrack that. That are unlike anything else in his his uh, catalog of works, like David's theme, for example, is just you know just exquisite and and ambivalent in some really fascinating ways, musically speaking. Didn't make it onto the soundtrack album, uh, original soundtrack album. So like when that uh, La La Land release came out, I think it's La La Land. That was like a revelation for a lot of people. Right. Um, but the the blue blue fairy theme. I mean that may that may the blue fairy fairy theme from AI. That may be the single most beautiful. Melody, I think, in my 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 professional uh, opinion that he ever wrote. Oh yeah, and Barbara Bonnie, I believe that's the the woman who's singing uh, it. Yeah, it's just gorgeous. Yeah, maybe I can try to uh, recapture some of the magic on the piano here. Um, this is the the David theme. unbelievably polished musical uh, uh, utterance. And then the Blue Fairy theme, which is a, a little bit more effusive, but not that much. It's sadder even. Um,
And that final cadence in particular, it's just one of my favorite little musical gestures that Williams very rarely makes use of this kind of uh, the chord progression and the voicing. And I noticed it also in uh, The Rise of Skywalker for, for Ray's death, the, the very similar kind of uh, uh, musical idea. Something about it, I mean, it, it speaks personally to me in a way that I find myself hard-pressed uh, to explain. But Yeah, it sounds like it's that particular chord progression that really grabs you. And you, when you yeah. hear it, it just it, you get that instinct in your gut. Yep. Yeah, that's kind of like the perfect fifth for me. Whenever I hear it, I just and I, I could grab onto it. I'm like it, it really gives me chills because I know it's it's kind of like that that hero interval, and I'm just like, yes, something good yeah. is going to happen. Well, how much of your your love of that interval comes from John Williams? Because so many of his themes, uh, the heroic themes, the, the rousing boisterous hero material is based on that interval oh, right that's probably yeah. yeah the way that we teach you know in music classes often we'll teach our intervals based on john williams so the the rising perfect fourth and fifth that's star wars and you know uh, uh there, there are plenty of examples for pretty much any musical idea that you could oh yeah <laughs> consult the williams catalog somewhere and find the you know the perfect tritone or the perfect augmented six chord or whatever you know it's all in there somewhere it is and and it's really interesting how you know some of the the music that i've all i know i've really liked and never really could put my finger on it sometimes it is that perfect fifth and sometimes it's it feels like it's getting to the perfect fifth but almost maybe it's the perfect fourth um and i think it's kind of like the the indie theme never gets the perfect fifth because he's never really truly heroic um but you kind of feel like it's getting there, and that's why I kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's while we're we're sort of celebrating musical intervals, the one that that comes to mind for me is the the minor six, the ascending minor six, which is another Williams favorite, which you get in Across the Stars, of course. get it in some of the other sort of one-off melodies in uh, um, Attack of the Clones 2. It's just, uh, <laughs> I can't help myself. It's it's uh, uh, it's kind of a pedagogical approach where you you notice and you catalog and you in inventory these little musical phenomena for use later, for use in the classroom to help other people recognize and identify and reproduce musical ideas so so what if it happens to come from the love theme from one of the most embarrassing romances in all <laughs> cinema history right it's still it's still a great theme and and a beautiful uh um demonstration of a, a particular musical concept yeah there's no nobody like him and, I, and there's there's <laughs> not going to be any i don't think there's going to be anybody like john williams ever I mean, do you do you find somebody out there who might be kind of the heir apparent to him yeah, this is a question that I've given quite a bit of thought to. I mean, one can almost not help but think about William's legacy and, and who will follow up, follow in his shoes, follow the act that he's he's uh, uh, laid down. And I would be perfectly honest with you, if, as far as like successors go, as far as someone who will exert an equal amount of influence and create 
an equal number of imitators and have kind of an importance within the in industry. I think we already know who William's successor is in those terms, and that's Hans Zimmer, just in terms of sheer uh, um, uh, the extent to which he has exerted a direction on how film music has evolved over the past 20 or going on 30 years, actually, now. It's right. kind of remarkable. Um, yeah, Zimmer is probably the, 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 the Williams of the new generation, the sort of Gen Z Williams, if that makes any sense. Actually, Williams, he's part of the silent generation, so I don't even think that that, that counts. Um, but Will, Zimmer's musical aesthetic and his mentality, it, it's night and day with Williams in most respects. So actually, I don't, I don't think of him as an heir apparent in the same sense. Uh, but there, there are other composers who, for whom their musical sensibility, I think, is most closely aligned with Williams, the sort of uh, reliance on the orchestra, the symphony orchestra, rather than electronics and a kind of thematic imagination, which is not to say, again, that, that Zimmer doesn't, A, deserve the, the, that position or, you know, that, that he's incapable of writing themes. But I think of someone like um, Michael Giacchino or John Powell, who have, you know, in, quite literally followed in Williams' footsteps with their uh, uh, Star Wars um, Star Wars story scores. Um, Powell in particular, I, I'm really impressed with. I think more than anyone, he, he, he's brought together some of those more modern um, developments in music, uh, film music, with the classic, uh, fully integrated classic Williams idiom. Um, and they're actually, uh, there are figures, composers who are able to really, really recapture Williams' musical voice down to like the detail, uh, the, the the slightest details. People like um, Gordy Hobb right now, who's working on a lot of the uh, Star Wars video games, and, and maybe if, uh, a little bit earlier, um, Joel McNeely, someone who I wish got more work because he's a phenomenal composer in his own right, not just as someone who can uh, recapture some of the Williams magic. And I'm not, at this point, I'm just listing <laughs> composers I realize, but Ludwig Göransson. Um, very idiosyncratic uh, composer, and I love what he's done with The Mandalorian. It may not be to everyone's tastes, but I think that it's really refreshing to hear someone bring such a distinct musical sensibility to, to a Star Wars property while still retaining some kind of connection with the, the overall pre-established sound world. Uh, and I'm hearing this more and more as The Mandalorian season three, excuse me, season two, uh, proceeds or we're getting little snatches here and there. I don't know if you noticed in the March of the Resistance or Yoda's theme. And I almost think that like Snoke's theme might have been in there somewhere, but time will tell. Um, yeah, it's it's been amazing how he's been able to do that. And that's why I think maybe Ludwig Gorenson is kind of one of those people who said, I, I'm going to take up this mantle. And I think after, you know, whenever the Mandalorian's done, and I know he's won an Oscar uh, for Black Panther, but. Um, it, it, what I think of who could be the heir apparent to John Williams, it has to be someone who, like John Williams, can write extraordinary music across any genre. I mean, you could be Louis Gorenson and write such great music for sci-fi movies, but can he do a straight drama like The Accidental Tourist and really make it right, that, his music? Yeah, versatility and that chameleonic ability that's that's i mean that's essential aspect of william's own talent and it's a rare thing to find in anyone so 
maybe this is a, a dodge to your question, but maybe there won't be a heir apparent to John Williams. Maybe there shouldn't be, right? In, in the sense that Williams is a really singular figure in Hollywood or film music history, right? There's no one quite like him, no one that has quite the um, the tool set or has exerted the same influence that he has. Right, exactly. Um, and that's not to say, right, don't, don't, don't get me wrong, I don't think that's to say that there won't be equally important or equally accomplished film composers um, in, in generations to come, although they'll have their work cut out for them if they want to get as many you know, Academy Awards as Williams, but... But Williams' specific contribution, I don't think that's going to be duplicated. And I don't think that people should necessarily try either, right? Um, it'd be a shame that <laughs> all we heard was Williams' knockoffs for the next you know, several decades. Right. I don't think it's going to happen. Well, I think, you know, what would happen is the directors would say, well, I don't want John Williams. If I wanted John Williams, I'd ask for him. Or, you know, even if he weren't with us anymore, it's like, why do I want John Williams? I could just... Um, you know, let's let's make it your own thing. So it's going to be very tough for those composers. And I'm sure there are composers in your own classes. Um, there are composers in music schools around the world who say, I want to be the next John Williams. And yeah, that's that's maybe not going to be the way to go. But um, because I don't think John Williams even said, I'm going to be the next Henry Mancini. You know, he just mm-hmm. set out to have this career and has been extremely fortunate. Who, who's coming to... To, to film scoring with you know decades worth of playing in in, in jazz clubs in LA or writing for the Air Force uh, 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 marching band or cutting your teeth on television shows and documentaries for yeah. <laughs> you know the maritime provinces in Canada right it's just not going to happen so you know get as many different interesting voices on board and you know, we'll see what happens right that will be that will come to be the sound that we associate with all these franchises nothing ever immediately except for maybe williams nothing ever immediately sounds perfect for a film but it's because we hear it over and over again and we form attachments with the music for multi-film franchises that's how it's going to be accomplished well frank this has been so much fun i have learned so much from talking with you about John Williams about film music in general and um, I, I look forward to seeing more of your contributions and your analyses of, of film music and how your catalogs continue to grow because as I said nobody's doing this and um, it's it's a great resource that um, I, I have used to great extent and I'm sure many others are as well so thank you for that and uh, a big well, thanks for joining me today. Well, allow me to, to return the favor and, and thank you and congratulate you for this incredible accomplishment of of producing um, this beautifully uh, 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 conceived project here, you know, through thick and thin, through good film and bad, through, you know, A-list John Williams score and maybe, you know, A-minus list <laughs> John Williams score. I mean, it's an, an ama- amazingly uh, uh, thorough and fascinating uh, project and and one that I've enjoyed listening to on my own. I mean, uh, I've actually uh, listened to more than a few, especially of your earlier episodes, to to catch up on some of the movies that I have only seen through, say, Mystery Science Theater, for uh-huh. example. It's been a, a, a tremendous eye opener and a major service to to John Williams' scholarship. It's, it's it's a fantastic project. So thank you. I feel honored to have been on here, and congratulations, Jeff. Thank you, Frank. So, I guess it's time to say goodbye. But before I do, I want to celebrate some people who helped make this podcast series as good as it turned out to be. And I want to start by mentioning 23 names. John Maria Caschetto, 
Maurizio Caschetto, Jens Dietrich, Paulius Adokas, Richard Fish, Doug Grieve, Chris Hatt, Alex Hoffman, Sadiq Hussein, Victor Joss, Andrew Ledford, David Kay, Brian Martell, Yavar Moradi, Felix Moeller, Jim Nova, Jeff Owens, Derek Scholl, Colin Stokes, Brian Thompson, Eduardo Victoria, Eric Woods, and Paul Wright. Now, these 23 men, and unfortunately no women, were my co-hosts on 37 episodes of The Baton. And without them, those episodes would have just been terrible with just me hosting them. They just wouldn't have been as exciting or informative. I mean, because they all brought something to those episodes that I didn't have. I mean, they had some great analysis of the music. They were able to, some of them, perform some of the music and really highlight a lot of it. Now, they came from the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Italy, Belgium, Norway, France, Germany, and Qatar. Now, as I said, their knowledge was far superior to mine in many cases, and I bow to all of you, and I will thank you forever and ever for making this podcast much better than it might have been. John Maria Caschetto gets a big mention because he's the one who suggested that I bring on co-hosts, and boy was his suggestion spot on. Brian Martell and Paulius Adokas shared the award for the most appearances on the show. They were both on for four episodes each. When I started thinking about the possibilities of a podcast, Rick Johnson was a great sounding board and gave me some great advice from his career as a voiceover artist and sound engineer. He helped me pick the right equipment and the right podcast platform. But more importantly, he's the voice that opens each episode. Now, I asked Rick about the possibility of him doing an introduction for each film, thinking, well, he wouldn't do it because it's 109 introductions. But he did it, and that was above and beyond what I hoped he would do. Andy Childs works with the American Federation of Musicians, and without her help, I would not have been able to work out many of the timelines in John Williams' career, especially regarding recording dates in those years when John Williams was working on four or five film scores in a year. She was always willing to help, even when I felt like I was intruding too much on her life. So, Andy, thank you so much. Now, to all of you listening, I can't mention you all by name because there are hundreds of you. Almost, I think, almost a thousand of you. And it would take a long time to do it. And I'd be willing to do it, but, it, you know, it would just take a long time. Um, And I don't know all of you by name anyway, so it just, I couldn't do it. But I will say just thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I can't say enough thank yous. Not just for listening to the show, but for recommending it to friends and family and colleagues. And my hope was that just one person would listen to the show. But I have people listening on every continent. Um, I don't think anybody's listening in Antarctica. But if someone is listening from Antarctica or had listened to this while they had foot on Antarctica, please let me know because that would just be amazing. That would mean the world to me to know that the reach of this show went all the way to the southernmost tip of the world. What's really great is knowing that even the most devoted John Williams fans wrote to me and said that they learned something from a particular episode that they thought they already knew or just, you know, I debunked a theory or, um, you know, just filled in gaps that they had in their knowledge of John Williams. So 
all those hours of research just really was worthwhile knowing that I, I really helped educate some people about John Williams's life or even just about some music that he wrote. And of course, I have to thank John Williams. There is no artist, living or dead, who has moved me as much as he has with his seemingly effortless creations these past 60 years. This podcast gave me an outlet to convey my appreciation for his music, and it has opened my eyes and ears to so much. I look at the world differently when I listen to John Williams' music, and I have written him multiple times to let him know that. So thank you, John Williams, for creating music that made producing this podcast one of the most memorable experiences of my life. I, I just can't believe it's over. When I started this, I just thought two years was so long and the end just seemed so far away. And even with each passing episode, it seemed like episode 111 was so far away. And now it's here. A lot of you have asked me what's next. Well, I'm not going to be doing another podcast about um, any film composer. I really don't think I'm going to be doing another podcast. I mean, this was a one-and-done deal, and I knew that from the start. And I just don't think I have the strength for another one. This one took a lot of energy, especially uh, when I was busy with my real job as a swim, swimming instructor, uh, to be able to fit this in and make sure I, brought, I gave you those episodes every week. I, one thing I know I'm going to do is I'm going to get back to p- piano playing. I have missed it. I haven't been able to play one note on my keyboard since I started this podcast because all of my free time that I would be doing playing piano has been spent watching movies, researching music, listening to music. I've loved every second of it, but I want to get back to my own performance. So um, thank you all again. It's been a pleasure. I'm getting emotional. You probably hear it in my voice, but um, this is this has been a joy. I have made friends that otherwise I probably wouldn't have made. And again, this my voice has been heard on so many continents that you know this is a dream come true. And thank you all. And I bid you farewell, at least for now. Um, and in this format, yes, this will be goodbye. I really hope we can keep the conversation going. You can always reach me on email at jeffswim at aol.com. Reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, what have you. I'm always willing to talk about John Williams. And I know I'm not fully educated, but I'd love to continue my own education and maybe others' education about film music. So let's keep this going. It doesn't have to end with this. So it has been my honor to provide you with this podcast and most likely for the last time I will say the baton is down.